message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit trinitygracesa.org. Well, good morning. I want to welcome you once again to Trinity Grace. We're so glad that you're with us, especially if you're a guest this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, you'll want to turn it to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, as always, the passage is also printed for you in your bulletin. And kids, our young disciples, young followers of Jesus, I want to invite you to be listening for the following three things during the sermon this morning. First, be listening for a story about New York City, a story about New York City. Second, listen for a definition of peace. How would you define peace? And third, listen for how Jesus secures peace for us. How does Jesus secure peace for us? Well, this is the portion of our service where we open the Bible in hopes of understanding what it says and how it applies to our specific lives. And over the past four weeks during the season of Advent, we've slowed way down to really consider just one part of one verse in the book of Isaiah, engaging what you might call a topical sermon series over the Advent season. We've been considering verse 6 of chapter 9 that highlights four different names that the promised Savior would take. Isaiah says that there's a child who is going to be coming one day who will take these names. And what's surprising is that these are names that could only apply to God. And this morning, we come to the last name given to this child, the title Prince of Peace. And as we close out our Advent sermon series this morning, it's worth remembering that Advent is a time that invites us to consider the weight of sin in our lives to sit in the sometimes overwhelming darkness that we experience, to reflect with intention on the fact that this world is not the way it was originally intended to be. Advent's a season where we're invited to groan and lament and wait for the coming of Jesus. It's a season where we remember His first coming and humility back in the first century. And it's also a season that we look forward in anticipation to His second coming in glory, where Jesus will return as a glorious King to fully and finally put an end to sin and misery in this world. And one of the things that Jesus brings when He arrives on the scene is peace. And this is good news because you and I are a group of people who long for peace. One definition of peace is freedom from disturbance. Freedom from disturbance. And isn't that what sin is? A disturbance of God's good order, God's good world. Peace is what we were created to experience. And it's what sin has ruined by bringing hostility and chaos into this world. And it's what Jesus promises to restore with his life, death, and resurrection and future return. As we mentioned before, Jesus has done this truly now. He has made peace possible and we can truly experience it in our lives. And one day he promises to bring peace fully and finally. This morning we turn our attention to the peace that's brought by the Prince of Peace as we consider the final title that we find in Isaiah chapter 9, let's begin by reading our passage found in chapter 9, beginning in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden... In the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken on the day, as on the day of Midian. 
For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of the peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Well, this is God's word. He gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. I wonder if you've ever had someone encourage you to think bigger. Think bigger. Maybe it was someone who noticed that you weren't setting your goals high enough, or someone who realized that you didn't understand the scope and scale of a certain place, or someone who recognized that you weren't thinking through the ramifications of a particular action. When that happens, you might be encouraged to think bigger. This past summer, I had the opportunity to visit New York City for some classwork that I was doing. And the last time I visited that city was in middle school, and I didn't really remember much from that visit. But I remember the visit from this past summer. It's fresh on my mind. On my way to New York, I flew into LaGuardia Airport, and it was nighttime. And as we were landing, the plane made a bank right alongside the borough of Manhattan. And I had a perfect view of the lights and the buildings and the energy of Manhattan at night right out of the airplane window. And I don't think I'm being melodramatic when I say it was breathtaking. And then you land and you get on the ground and walk around Manhattan and the size and the scope of that city, it's just extraordinary. The people, the buildings, the entertainment, the history, the culture, it can be overwhelming. Now, I know some of you have visited cities even bigger than New York City. But as I walked the streets of Manhattan for a few days, it became pretty clear that I had underestimated just how massive and immense that city would feel. In preparing to visit, it would have been appropriate for someone to encourage me to think bigger. Now, tuck that idea away for a minute. I wonder what comes to mind when you hear the word peace. It's a word we see a lot this season, peace. We put it on Christmas cards We use the word when decorating our yards, maybe. It's on ornaments. Maybe even you have the word in block letters on your mantle this Christmas season. Peace. It's certainly in the running for the most popular word during the Christmas season. But what do we mean by that word? And it makes sense that we would want peace during this season when families gather, doesn't it? When gifts are exchanged, when we focus on what's most important in life. And if we're generally talking about good vibes versus bad vibes, I'd rather have good vibes, wouldn't you? But when we talk about peace, we have to think bigger. Think bigger. If peace is just something that we experience internally, if peace is just some warm, enjoyable feeling over the Christmas season, if peace is just the absence of conflict, well, that's great, but it's not very compelling. It's not big enough to address the issues that we're dealing with through the year. What about war, grinding poverty, homelessness, cultural polarization? The word used in verse 6 for peace is shalom. And it is one of the richest words in all the Hebrew language. You might translate shalom to mean universal flourishing. Shalom is not just the absence of conflict, it's the presence of wholeness. 
Shalom is what you were created for. It's what our hearts desire. It's a perpetual experience of completeness, connection, security, prosperity, spiritually speaking. Yet we know that we don't experience the peace promised by Isaiah in this fallen world. So shalom or peace becomes a word that invites us to reflect upon the tension that we feel in our lives. To continue to long for and eagerly anticipate the renewal and restoration that Jesus promises to bring to our lives in this world. And we need that renewal and restoration, don't we? We long for a reestablishment of shalom. Stop and consider the sad things that have happened to you in your life this past year. The sickness, the disease, the loss, the relational tensions, the disappointments, the difficulties, the heartbreaks. Now think over the course of your entire life. Think about the weight of sin that you've experienced, the abandonment, the besetting sins, the tragic news, the things that have been horribly done to you, the death of family and loved ones. Zoom up 30,000 feet and think about the state of the world, war and conflict, injustice, corruption, hunger and thirst, the, the human trafficking that's happening around the world, natural disasters that ruin people's lives. We can resonate with the line, and it came upon a midnight clear where we sing, Oh, ye beneath life's crushing load, whose forms are bending low who toil along the climbing way with painful steps and slow. When you think about the weight of sin in your life in this world, don't you long for Jesus to come back and make all things new? Don't you want Jesus to put an end to the pain and the sadness and the struggle and the tragedy in your life in this world? Don't you long for Jesus to reestablish shalom or peace? Well, that's what Isaiah promises a group of people who were suffering in verse 6 when he assures them that their coming Savior would be called the Prince of Peace, the Prince of Shalom, the Prince that will one day reestablish universal flourishing. As we reflect on that title this morning, let's ask ourselves, how would the first recipients, how would an Israelite back in 700 BC think about this title, Prince of Peace? Remember, we touched on the importance of putting ourselves in the shoes of the original audience when we looked at the title Wonderful Counselor and how Israelites didn't hear that title the same way that we do with our 21st century cultural sensibilities. When we hear the word counselor, we tend to think of a therapist or a life coach. But an Israelite in Isaiah's time would have thought of a high-ranking government official or an advisor to the king, a person with supernatural wisdom. We also mentioned last week that when the Israelites heard the title Everlasting Father, they wouldn't have initially thought of their paternal father. They would have likely thought of a chief or an elder or a king. These terms that we read about in Isaiah chapter 9, they get a bit lost in translation between two completely different languages and cultures. Well, we can engage the same exercise as we consider the title Prince of Peace. When we think of peace... Our mind goes to Christmas cards, home decorations, freedom from conflict at the dinner table. But just reading the context in Isaiah chapter 9 reveals that what Isaiah is speaking of is much bigger than that. You might say that we need to be thinking bigger when we consider what it means that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. We see in verse 7 that this child will sit on the throne of David. He's a prince, meaning the son of a king. 
And the increase of his government and peace will have no end. In other words, this is no static monarchy. The prince's rule and reign, it will continually expand into history. This prince will engage on a global scale. Now, when an Israelite heard the term prince of peace, what would have come to their mind? Well, if they knew their history, which they most certainly would have in that oral culture, their mind would have immediately gone to King Solomon the son or the prince of the great King David. In fact, you might remember that the Israelite dynasty was largest under Solomon's rule. It reached its pinnacle under Solomon's leadership, and it was largely characterized by peace. Now, the name Solomon, that's an interesting name in the original language. In the Hebrew, you would pronounce the name Shalomo. Shalomo. And even today, it's a common name for Jewish boys. It's a name that means peaceable. Solomon would have been the original prince of peace in an Israelite's mind. And his name is rooted in the word shalom. You heard it phonetically in the name Shalomo. He was a man characterized by peace, characterized by shalom. In fact, you might remember that Solomon was allowed to build the temple of the Lord because he was a man of peace. And David wasn't allowed to undertake that effort because he was a man of war. He had blood on his hands. But by the time Solomon comes along, the wars were by and large over for a season and it was a time of peace. So God commanded, he invited Solomon to build his temple. And descriptions of Solomon's reign are amazing. Under his reign, Israel experienced unprecedented wealth and prosperity. Solomon was known for unusual and extraordinary wisdom. He would have been able to acquire anything he wanted at the time. On top of that, his influence on other kings and world leaders was noteworthy. We read that world leaders of the time would actually travel to visit him and marvel at his wisdom and his guidance. And what's special about that is that he was actually dispensing God's wisdom to these world leaders. These were not life hacks or 12 rules for life by Solomon. He was transmitting the very mind of God to these leaders. And as if that weren't enough, there was no war during his reign. It must have been amazing to live at the height of Solomon's reign. But even for all its glory, Solomon's reign, you know, wasn't perfect. Far from it. You might remember that Solomon didn't follow the Lord with complete faithfulness. He had hundreds and hundreds of wives and concubines. He had children who would never really know their father. And he would require forced labor in his own country, treating people as less than human, especially when it came to building the temple itself. As great as Solomon was, as magnificent as his reign was, he didn't get Israel there completely. He didn't bring shalom fully. And that's what we see on the pages of the historical books of the Old Testament. The good kings, they all almost get there. They make great progress. They garner lots of hope and anticipation. And then at some point, they all falter. And as we read Israel's history, we are continually left with a feeling, can somebody just come and get this right? Can somebody nail shalom? Can somebody bring peace? And here, it would be worth remembering once again as we continue this morning just what shalom is. What is the peace that's needed? Well, if you remember the original audience, let's put ourselves in their shoes for a moment, which is always a great thing to do as you're reading the Scriptures. If you remember, the Israelites were staring down war when Isaiah was writing to them. 
As Israelites, they would have wanted an absence of war. They were staring down the Assyrian empire and that empire was going to come and sweep Israel away with destruction and bloodshed. You can actually read Isaiah's prophecy about what Assyria would do to Israel just one chapter earlier in chapter 8 of Isaiah. And so when Israel thought about peace, their mind would have been taken immediately to their felt needs at the time. They wanted peace with Assyria. They didn't want Assyria to pick on them. They didn't want conflict. They wanted smooth waters. Now, what do we mean by peace? Well, normally we think the same thing, don't we? We tend to think that peace is an absence of conflict. And boy, do we want that during this time of year when we spend lots of intentional time with family. And while the absence of conflict is oftentimes welcome, it's not always ideal. We can think of a number of different areas in our life where conflict is actually a good thing because it indicates that people really care for us. An easy example is to think of a person who struggles with alcohol. And we're certainly not picking on anyone here. It's just uh, using an understandable real-life example that has principles for other behaviors too. But just think about it. An alcoholic doesn't encounter conflict from the ones they love. That person isn't really experiencing shalom, are they? Now, the alcoholic might think that it's peace, might think that it's shalom. After all, they want to be left alone to drink in the privacy of their own home or to drink as much as they want or to drink whenever they want. But that behavior would not lead to peace and fullness and wholeness. We might say that person needs appropriate conflict. Conflict isn't always a bad thing. Just like we need our body to produce an immune response when it's being attacked by sickness. And it reminds me of an unusual saying from Jesus on the pages of the Gospels where he says, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have come to bring a sword or to bring division. Now, does that sound like something the Prince of Peace would say? But we've all known people who experience this, haven't we? We've known people who have been ostracized by their family for following Jesus. We know how following Jesus can produce tensions with family, maybe even in your own life. You might even feel this tension with coworkers and friendships. What is Jesus saying here? Well, at least one thing he's saying is that he didn't come to make everyone get along better. That's not thinking big enough. That's not the kind of peace that Jesus ultimately brings. You might say we need to think bigger. In some instances, Jesus actually came to highlight division in significant ways. So back to the question, what is the shalom that we want? What do we mean by peace? Well, we tend to think horizontally, don't you? But there's a thing in each of us that we show up with that needs to be dealt with first. There are relationships that we have with each other that are horizontal in nature. And there's a relationship that we have with God that you might consider vertical. And we sabotage peace all the time vertically. In fact, we can't help ourselves. And that's the relationship that we need to take care of first. But we have a problem because there's nothing that we can do to manufacture peace in that vertical relationship. We can't earn the peace we so desperately need with God. 
You can't double your Bible reading or double your giving or double your service or double your joy. Nothing we could do could ever obtain the peace that we need. We can't manufacture it, but God can certainly give it. And it's exactly what he plans to do by sending the Prince of Peace, by sending us a Savior. God is doing, he's going to do what we can't do ourselves. He's going to bring shalom between God and man. Now, how does God intend to do that? Well, it's interesting because this figure that Isaiah writes about in chapter 9, he shows back up later in Isaiah. You might know this. And he's grown from a baby into a man at that point. And Isaiah calls him the servant of the Lord later on in Isaiah. And in chapter 53, we read that this prince of peace was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we were healed. Isaiah says that his death brought us peace, with his wounds we were healed. And isn't that a beautiful and appropriate picture? Hostility is put to death through the cross. Peace comes through the blood of the Prince of Peace. In order to bring peace, Jesus had to endure God's hostility against sin, bearing and absorbing that hostility that he has towards us, towards sin, shedding his blood so that we might be able to experience true and authentic peace with God and one another. To put it in another way, the one person who owed you nothing but hostility and conflict because of your sin came to make peace with you. And he did it at great expense to himself. But we know that the work isn't yet complete, right? The work of peace was begun back in the first century on the cross. And the part that we could never accomplish is finished. But we still live this side of resurrection, don't we? This side of heaven. We still wait for the Prince of Peace to come back and finish the work that he started. This side of resurrection, we still have homelessness and graves and depression and disconnection. But even as we live in this fallen world, we maintain faith that our Prince of Peace will one day soon fix anything that undermines shalom. In Isaiah chapter 11, we get a picture of what that future shalom will look like when Isaiah describes shalom with these words. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child should play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child should put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The work of this Prince of Peace is to undo everything cursed in this world. As we sing in the hymn, Joy to the World, we'll sing it later this evening. He came to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And this means that if we want shalom, if we want true lasting peace and wholeness, we can quit looking somewhere else for shalom. Because created things can't bring the shalom that you were made to experience. Don't ask other things to carry that weight. Other things can't carry that freight for you. Our family, they can't manufacture our shalom. And believe me, they feel the pressure that we put on them to do it. The presents under the tree, kids, you're about to tear into some presents tonight and tomorrow. 
And I hope you love them. I hope you enjoy them, but they won't bring internal peace. The new house, the new car, the renovated kitchen, I hope it's awesome, but it can't give you the wholeness that your soul desires. Only Jesus can give us the shalom that we crave. And the desire for shalom seems to be hardwired in every one of us. In fact, I recently heard a friend touch on the image that we tend to see a lot this time of year. And it was interesting to hear him talk about it. It's an image that we see on Christmas cards often. In fact, I receive a few e-cards, emailed cards during this season, and they always have this image as a major part of the message. It's the image of a village. It's not a city, it's not a farm, it's a village. And it's normally covered in pure white snow with beautiful lighting. And the houses are of a perfect size. They're not too small. They're not too big. They're a humane size. And the church sits in the middle of the town. And people are walking around peacefully as the snow is falling. And the lights are glowing. And there's no law enforcement. And there's no graves. And there's no hospitals. And there's no homeless people. Why do we keep drawing this picture? Why do we pass this picture back and forth to one another during this season? Well, it's because we want there to be a place that is like this earth and is not like this earth. And what we're doing when we create that image of idyllic scenes and pass it around, well, we're revealing that we are homesick. We're homesick. We're homesick for what we lost in the Garden of Eden. We're homesick for the shalom that we forfeited. We're homesick for the connection with our Heavenly Father. We're homesick for connection with one another. And Isaiah is reminding us this morning that if you trust in the Prince of Peace, he promises that he will take you home. Our Prince of Peace will one day soon fix anything that undermines shalom. We have that guarantee because he already came once to begin the work. And He promises to come one day soon to complete what He began. That's our great hope on this fourth Sunday of Advent. Let me pray for us. Father, we are thankful for the promises that You make to us in Your Word. Lord, we are a group of people who long to experience peace. And we know that we need to experience peace with You first and foremost. And the rest of the peace that You've promised will flow from there. And so we pray this morning that you would continue to work your peace into our hearts and lives. Help us to set our attention upon the Prince of Peace as he leads us in the right direction. We pray in his name. Amen.